Well, um, as you have in your order of service, my name is Pastor Gary Gordon. I'm the associate pastor of the Lauder Hill Church in Broward County, South Florida. It's um, about three and a half hours drive from here, um, if you drive fairly quick. Um, and I'm very glad to have been able to make the trip up. As you, some of you will know, I think most of you will know, we had a leadership summit here, um, very well attended. I think around 200 folks or so were here, and uh, Thursday and Friday. And I understand we've been doing focus on leadership in the last few weeks, and so um, I'm part of that focus. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you, Pastor Bernie and Pastor Jeff, for the invitation. Um, now, Pastor Jeff may not remember, but I think it was five years ago, I came as a, a visitor. I was doing the uh, a unit of chaplaincy training at Florida Hospital, and um, my experience, or at least my context, when you have a pastor visiting, you introduce yourself to the senior pastor, and I, and I did so. It was a little different context, but uh, Pastor Jeff was very gracious and even, even took my card and mentioned me, and uh, here I am five years later speaking. So you never know how um, the world works and how things will turn out. And so it's always good to be nice to people, right? <laughs> and Pastor, you were very gracious and I thank you for that. Um, now, of course, you tell from my accent and perhaps from some of you will know that I'm from the, the United Kingdom, um, Great Britain, um, the British Empire, things that you may remember. Um, now, what I like to do on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen whenever I visit uh, one of our former subjects um, <laughs> is to just remind you a little bit of our, of our rich history and connection, all right? So, as you know, um, 1776, you as a nation went on your own, all right, and uh, left us. Um, and at the time, uh, we were around about 25, 28% of the um, population in terms of uh, the world population, language, and also control and influence in the world. And so as you think of the map of the world and what that looked like then, I'm here on behalf of, of uh, Her Majesty to offer you the opportunity to come back home. <laughs> all right? Come back home, all is forgiven. Um, you know that we're going through our challenges at the moment. We have um, issues with, with, we're leaving the European Union, and uh, we need some friends. <laughs> and, you know, we feel that, you know, the US has its challenges too, and maybe you could do with some friends. So let's bring the band back together, all right? Let's, let's at least think about it. Um, there are a few conditions to that. Some of your sports would change, so we'd have to do away with baseball, all right? <laughs> and replace it with cricket. Anyone know cricket out here? Yeah, cricket, right? Excellent, right? Um, football, which, which we have in our country, which you call soccer, we'd have to change that, all right? So um, we, would, we would have the real football, which you, you, know, you kick with your feet, all right? And, and lastly, we, we would like to do away with the NBA, all right? And uh, as you don't have a team here in Orlando at the moment, we kind of figure that that will be all right. We feel you. Okay. All right. Sorry. It's kind of a little South Florida joke, all right? A little Miami 
Miami joke there. All right, now I do have to get on, but I want to say uh, apologies for my wife and uh, children not here with me today. Um, they are ministering in the church back home. Uh, our son, Nathaniel, he is 14. He is a drummer. Uh, he produces music, uh, and he's playing today at church, and um, so he's not able to be here. Nathaniel, interesting thing about Nathaniel, uh, when he was born 14 years ago, I wanted to call him Josiah, all right? And my wife wanted to call him Joshua, so we called him Nathaniel, all right? <laughs> that's, that's important for those of you who've been married for a long time. That's called compromise, all right? And compromise is when you, sometimes as a husband, get what you want, not often, sometimes. Uh, the wife gets what she wants, which is generally most of the time. Or every now and then, neither of you get what you want. You do something different. So that's Nathaniel. Hannah Mae, um, she's our, our darling fashionista. She's 11, and my wife, Andrea. So they're not with us. My wife actually fulfills a very important part of my ministry, and that is to let me know how the sermon is going. All right? If she leans in, that means you're doing great, your points are coming across clearly, you're making a lot of sense. If she kind of leans back, that means I don't know where you're going, and I think you're losing the congregation. If she picks up her hymnal, that means it's time to finish. Now, she's not here, so someone may need to pick up their hymnal at some stage and let me know it's time to finish. But I understand that this service, I've been told, goes longer than the other services, all right? So, so we'll work on that. So I think we'll pray and, and get into what God has for us today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to just uh, spend some time in worship, in fellowship, and in your word. We uh, think of many who in the summer are preparing to go back to college. We think of their lives and how they will be affected and transitions and changes. And so we're just uh, lifting up those families and also we're lifting up your word and we pray that you'll bless us now. In your name we pray, amen. Now one of the, the unique things about being the age that I am is that you get to a point where you realize that you're getting old and there are things that are coming that are after you that are different. One of those things is, is taking pictures, all right? Uh, uh, and um, my daughter, Hannah Mae, is always telling me, Dad, you, you don't know how to take selfies. All right. Now, for those of us who are a little older, selfies, when you have the phone, you turn the camera around and you take a, a picture with someone else or yourself and you say where you are. And she's always saying to me, Daddy, you don't know how to take um, selfies. Now, I took a selfie with a pastor recently and uh, I couldn't quite get the sizing right. Okay, there was a little um, difference in height between us. And um, so I, I, I'm going to put it up on the screen and you tell me... You tell me what you think about this, right? Do you see that? I, I, couldn't, quite, I couldn't quite get it right. But, but he did say to me, because I told him, Pastor Morris and I, we were at Andrews uh, in, in Michigan 
for a family conference, and he said, when you get to Forest Lake, please tell the folk I said hi, and tell them I'm actually standing up. I really am standing up. I'm not, I'm not sitting down. The world in which we live has changed so much. You think of photography, we think of um, when I was a child growing up, and how we would uh, have the little instant uh, Polaroid camera, and we would point it, and it would come out, and we would shake it, and, and voila, this, this image would appear. And it was exciting. It was almost like magic for us as children um, having this experience. And each time in each generation, there, there are things that are new, there are things that are different, whether it's music, where, where culture. We live in a very changing world. But one of the things that we have been reminded uh, during these past few days is that although the world changes, there is always a need for leadership. There is always a need for a voice of direction, a voice of hope, a voice of encouragement, a voice of inspiration. Now, when we think about leadership, often we are tempted to think of um, the brightest and the best. We think of... Um, corporate directors, CEOs, we think of great innovators, people who have created and done great things, um, brought companies from, from small beginnings to uh, billion-dollar organizations or institutions. We, we think of leadership in those contexts, or we think of um, speakers, you know, your Tony Robbins, or, or uh, I was going to say Dr. Phil, but I don't think he quite fits in the same bill there. But we think of people who inspire, who, who motivate, individuals like um, John Maxwell, who, who inspire and motivate people to achieve the, the very best of themselves. And I came across a quote, I'm sure some of you have seen it, where John Maxwell says that leadership is perhaps a little simpler than the great grand idea that we often have in mind. Uh, the true measure of leadership is influence. He says, nothing more, nothing less. Influence. And so when Pastor Bernie asked me to, to speak, I, this thought resonated with me because it says that all of us, no matter how young or how old, no matter our cultural context, have the ability to influence to share our influence, the, the extent of our journey and experience with someone to, to lead them to something better. In the context of our Christian faith, that, that influence is, is ultimately to point individuals to Christ, to God, who is the source of our strength and the strength of our life. And so, for the time that we have together, I want to anchor the thoughts that I want to share with us in a text that may be familiar to us, it's found in uh, the book of Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5. It will be on the screen and um, you can follow along if you've brought your Bibles with you. Now Naaman's commander, now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because of him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. 
for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Imagine with me, if you will, for a moment, that you're sitting at home. Perhaps it's Thanksgiving or one of the holidays you're enjoying. You've had a meal. You're enjoying time with your family, uh, children, grandchildren, sharing and celebration, perhaps watching a football game. And you hear noise and commotion outside. It seems like people exchanging words, but then it gets louder and louder and Perhaps there are the sound of shots that are fired. You realize there's something terrible going on. Screams, loud, louder. You open your window, and as you open, the, the, pull back the curtain, as you look out, you see people are going from house to house, pulling out individuals from their home and taking them away. You're filled with panic and fear. You think about your family. And the door breaks open, and your child or grandchild is snatched away and taken away. You have no idea where they are. Think of the terror and the fear that exists in that child's heart as they find themselves the next morning as a servant, a slave. But not just any slave, not just any servant taken away from their family, but you, she, that child is serving in the home of the leader that allowed her to be taken away in the first place. If we think about that, perhaps we can, in this context, consider the story that we've just read in our text. The Syrian army, the Bible says, have been allowed to take captive particular people, children, families, sectors of Israel, it would seem to suggest from the text because the nation of Israel was not fulfilling the cause and the call that God had placed on their life. Naaman, the Bible says, is the captain of, of the army, the Syrian army. And of course, he has the, the pick, the choice of the very best who will serve his wife and his house. And so the text tells us that there is this young maid who is called to work in the house of Naaman. And we're arrested in the text because it seems that right from the outset, this young girl is committed. She's diligent. She seems to be engaged. And we are somehow perplexed I guess, first of all, because we are wondering how someone so young could be able to serve in such hostile territory in the house of one who was responsible for her captivity. As I thought about this text and sharing the message with you today, and thinking about leadership as influence, the first thought that came to me was that perhaps leadership correctly understood, 
is not really about having our name in lights. It's not about being on a committee. It's not about being elected or voted or nominated. But leadership at its core is having a heart to serve. The leadership through influence at its core is being willing to be used in whatever capacity is available. And so when thinking about leadership as influence, I think there are a few themes that this text brings to life. First of all, I would suggest to us this afternoon that leadership through influence comes when we are not constrained by the captivity that may surround us. This young girl was in captivity, and yet she was committed to being available to offer help to Naaman, who had a desperate need to be cured of his leprosy. Naaman seems to have everything going for him. But the text tells us in verse 1 that he is a leper. And so there is a desperate need, there is a solution. And in the middle of that, there is a willing heart. A willing heart that is not constrained by the reality of her own condition, her own circumstance, a willing heart that is able to look beyond the reality of her own captivity and her own pain to the need of someone else. But not just anyone, but actually the person responsible for her captivity. Hmm. And so the text says that here is Naaman, sick with leprosy, mighty man of valor, great leader. Here is a servant girl, captive, young, seemingly insignificant. And somewhere between the greatness of Naaman and the poverty of this young girl is a solution. Perhaps then, we may have very little to say about our own limitations. Perhaps then we might think less of our inability because if God can work through a little servant girl, what might he do through us? And so, I would suggest to us, number one then, that we ought not to be constrained by our captivity. What might that captivity be? Perhaps it's the captivity of our own pain, our own frustration, our own regrets, our own guilt, our own disappointment. The reality of things that have not worked for us in the journey of our life, the mistakes that we have made, that, that sometimes in the quietness of the moment hold us captive and place within our minds an inability to think outside of ourselves because there is so much of ourself that sits in the way. Perhaps it is the captivity of our own 
environment as a family. The disappointments and the brokenness that we may have experienced through, through divorce or through the loss of our children from the, the teaching and the training that they have had. Perhaps it's the disappointments of not being able to realize the success of our careers or the financial reality that we have less to retire on than we had hoped. Perhaps there is also the captivity of our living in this world. Seeing the pain and the suffering and the secularism and the immorality that plagues our society. And so we even lift our hands in desperation and say, it's too much. We can't have an impact. We can't do anything. But this little servant girl said, I may be captive physically, but inside I can be free. I can be free to be available to what God would have me to do. And so she used her influence. She used her knowledge of the prophet in Samaria. And so perhaps number two, as I think about this secondly, that this text may teach us, is that we lead through influence best when we care about those who are outside of our borders. If anyone could have a right to say, I'm not going to be involved with this, it would have been this servant girl. If anyone who could have been justified to say, well, Naaman, I, I hope your, your skin rots and it falls. It would have been her. And yet, she is moved by the pain and the suffering and the agony of Naaman to offer a solution. In Lauder Hill, we face significant challenge. When I came to uh, the, U the U.S., one of the, uh, I moved to a church that is in a fairly affluent area. Many of the members had um, done very, very well for themselves and lived, lived very well, I would say, comfortably. And um, I was there for three and a half years. And then a conference uh, asked me to take the position in Lauderhill. And I went from the, the opulence and the comfort of, of two and three um, garage homes, four and five bedrooms and swimming pools, to the poverty of small one-bedroom apartments in rough neighborhoods. And I thought to myself when I got to the church, well, this would be a great opportunity to, to work with a community that had a real sense of 
the needs and the pain and the struggle and the suffering of those that they were living amongst. But what I found, Pastor Jeff, was that while we lived in a community that was deprived and struggling, there were many members in our church who had, because of the progress and Adventist education and all of those other things, had experienced upward mobility to the point where while we went to church in the community, we were not part of the community. And the community was not part of us. And so one of the initiatives before I got there and since has been to seek to encourage us to be part of the community that we live in. And to recognize that while the struggles and the, and the needs and the pain may not be ours, we have a responsibility to be of help and support. And so leadership comes at its best when we give love and care beyond our circle. We give love and care when we have little to get back, but the blessing of God that says, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm thinking about her carrying water. I'm thinking about her cleaning and polishing and preparing all of these things. And what I see and the question that I have in my mind is how does she get from that point to speaking about the prophet in Samaria? Leadership through influence, I think, also comes when we are committed and we have courage. Somewhere, this young girl was so committed to the task and the responsibility that she had been given that when the word came from her that there is a prophet in Samaria, name his wife, responded to her words. Sometimes we think about the big thing, the great thing, the tremendous thing that we can do, maybe the big gift that we can give, the, the significant donation or, or whatever that might be. But I think as we've journeyed through life, we know that what matters most and what people need most is just someone who will come alongside them, be with them, experience that commitment from them. Today at our church, this, in fact, when I leave here, I'm heading straight back. Um, we have a program on uh, bereavement. We're looking at bereavement. We've lost a lot of um, members in the past few, few months and years. And one of the, the things that we've been talking about is how we move from just simply saying, I'm very sorry in the first few weeks to knowing that people need you to be alongside them long after when the cards are put away and the phone calls don't come as often. Because part of our nature is that we are sometimes very good at that initial expression, that, that overwhelming 
support. But something in the commitment of this servant girl not only validated her words, but also gave courage. Because courage is an essential part of leadership. Because there are some things that need to be said, and there are only certain people who will say them. There are some things that need to be said about poverty, but not everyone will say it. There are some things that need to be said about domestic violence, but not everyone will say it. There are some things that need to be said about the isms of our world, be it sexism or racism, but not everyone will say it. Because many people lack the courage. But if we can lead through commitment, God will give us the courage. The Word of God says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, Psalm 37 and verse 5, and He will do it. You see, she was not just committed to work. She was committed to God. I want to say to parents, Sometimes we read these Bible stories and grandparents, we read these Bible stories and, and they go over our heads a little bit when we think about the young children that are involved and the young personalities. But, but I would just say, let's be encouraged to continually lift up our children before God, encourage them to follow God and to know his word and to know his will for their life. Lastly, this text I think tells us that this servant girl, the girl who has no name, was so centered in Christ that he was the source of her influence. He was the source of her influence. The text says later on in 2 Kings 5 that, that as a result of that, Naaman goes out, he meets Elisha, the word comes, you've got to go to the Jordan and dip seven times, and I'm sure many of us know the story, he goes down and he doesn't like the idea of doing it, but he does it, and in the end, he comes up clean. A miracle is realized because of the influence of a faithful child. What might God do through your influence? What might God, what miracle might God do in the life of a family member through your prayers? What might God do in the life of your co-worker or your neighbor? What miracle might be accomplished if we are not constrained by our captivity, if we care beyond our borders, if we are committed and courageous, and if we stay Christ-centered. In 1976, 
my mom and dad separated. When I was, um, when I was born, I was 10 and three quarter pounds. Apparently that's a big baby. In fact, there's a funny story that, that um, on the same day that I was born, which, which um, is the 29th of, of August, so if anyone wants to send me a gift, I'll give you my address afterwards, all right? You can do that. Um, and when I was born, 10 and 3 quarter pounds, there were, there were twins that were born in the, in the same hospital, in the same unit, um, in the, the night before. I was born on the 29th, they were born on the 28th. And those, those twins were five and a quarter pounds each. And so the big joke in the hospital, of course, was, you know, two for one, you know? <laughs> that was the big joke. We're still friends today, actually, um, the Beecher twins. My mom said to me, um, I mean afterwards, but at the time, because back then there, there were really no elective cesareans, okay? Um, you didn't have like what you have now, the TENS machine and the, the water birth and, you know, your birthing partner. In fact, my dad um, said to my mom, because he, he dro drove her to the, the maternity unit, he, he dropped her off and said, I'll see you tomorrow, okay, because he worked shifts, all right? I mean, someone's got to work, right? Okay. So uh, he dropped her off and she went and, and it was difficult for, for, for me to come out as it were. And she said, in the process of delivery, she cried out to God and she said, if you allow me to have this child or something like that, I'll give him back to you. Now, what that meant for my mom in 1976 was a decision had to be made because the, the life that we were experiencing as a family was not allowing that promise to be realized. And so they separated. My mom found a church where we were nurtured and encouraged. We had all of the services of the church and we, we kind of lived at the church really. It was an awesome experience. We were involved in everything. But pivotally for our journey as children, and my journey in particular, was that every morning my mom would begin singing around 6 a.m., 6, 6.30. It was called, wait for it, morning worship. And she would sing and we knew that was kind of like a call. We would come down and we would have our prayers together, read a morning watch text and Sometimes, I mean, some of you remember, you'd sometimes even fall asleep, right? Yeah? But she kept doing this. And she implanted, planted a seed in my heart. She never wrote a book. She never went to college. I think she kind of barely finished high school. But she just had a belief that God had called her to do a work. And that work was to live a life as an example and to plant the seed of hope and faith in the life of her children. 
Last year, I baptized our son, Nathaniel, and daughter, actually, Hannah Mae. And I called my mom and I said, Mom, I baptized Nathaniel and Hannah Mae today. And she began to tell me again the story, which I've heard a few times, about how she had prayed to God that through her influence, I might be led to follow the Lord. She said, son, I think my work is done. In March of this year, we buried my mom. And while it was a time of great sadness and loss, I knew that she went to her grave knowing that she had done what God had called her to do. And maybe today as we think about how we might influence and how we might affect the lives of those who we come into contact with, we don't have to think of it as some grand, humongous achievement that we must perform on the scale of this world's atmosphere and environment, but simply that we give ourselves to God, looking outside of ourselves, to do whatever he calls us to do, to lead somebody, to know him, and to love him. And so leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. May God help us to use the influence that we have to lead somebody to know Lord Jesus. God bless you.